Welcome to the inaugural episode of everyone's new favorite podcast. Certainly my favorite new podcast, but I'm clearly a little biased. Please give yourself a pat on the back for joining me. Give me an applause. Welcome to episode one, season one of Journeys into the Land of Whiteness. My name is James Lincoln, but you can call me Jimmy, and I'm going to be your host, not only on this episode, but on all subsequent episodes. And if the title doesn't make it clear, the topic of each of these episodes, the thematic topic anyway, is going to be whiteness. And it's going to be a white Southern man, myself, trying to explain to myself out loud and to my listeners how white people are socialized. How white people are taught explicitly and implicitly that the racialized system of white supremacy that is oh so real in this country, even in 2020, especially in 2020, how we are taught to uphold that system, often passively, sometimes actively, almost always unconsciously. But nonetheless, we are taught, do not get it twisted. All white people, I don't care how woke, I don't care how down, I don't care how many invitations to how many barbecues you have, every single white person in America is taught, is socialized into white supremacy. And that entails everything from stereotypes of our black and Latinx brothers and sisters as well as our indigenous brothers and sisters and and our brothers and sisters of Asian descent, whether it's those stereotypes we're taught, whether it's notions of white privilege and how we're taught to benefit from white privilege without acknowledging white privilege or even naming white privilege, whether it's economic or geographic or residential segregation that we're meant to take for granted, all these different ways that we're taught about our whiteness. That's the goal of this podcast. Is to just rip myself open, metaphorically, dig into my memories, and tell as many stories as I can about how I, as a young, born and raised in Virginia, southern white boy, who has always considered himself to be anti-racist, who has always considered himself to be an ally of the Black Lives Matter movement, how I was socialized and taught about whiteness without anyone ever coming out and telling me they were teaching me about whiteness. That's the inspiration for this podcast. That's the inspiration for the name of this podcast. Because it really is going to be a trip. It's going to be a metaphorical trip down memory lane. And I'm going to try and peel back as many layers of my own personal experience as I can. When appropriate, I'm going to connect my personal experience to broader historical and sociological events and processes and people. I'll share research from time to time that I've stumbled across or authors and scholars who I've stumbled across. But as much as it's fun for me to be a nerd, and I am most certainly a nerd, I didn't want to just come on this podcast and nerd out. I wanted it to be as personal 
and casual in terms of me and my listeners having a conversation as possible. Because if anything, what I need my white listeners to do at some point, whether it's after you hear episode one or after you hear episode 300, that'd be dope if we make it to 300, but dream big. I need you to go replicate what I'm trying to do with myself on this podcast. I need you to replicate that with yourself. And I don't need you to host a podcast. I don't need you to go on social media. That would be great. But that's not what I'm talking about. I don't need you protesting. That would be awesome, too. Telling you what, sidebar. Living down here in Richmond, Virginia these these past few months. The energy in this city, the young people who are stepping up and saying, fuck this, this is ending now, has been just beyond incredible. So I'll probably devote a whole episode to that at some point, but I'm going to try and take this chronological. So back to my main point, my white listeners, I don't need you to start a podcast. I don't need you protesting. I don't need you on social media. I don't need you joining local nonprofit organizations. All those moves would be great. And I've done all those things. And they're all nice. But what we as white folks really need to do is some really uncomfortable soul searching. We need to start having conversations with ourselves and our friends and our families about what it means to be white in the United States. Because that's not something... That has happened historically in this country for white families. Black and brown families have had to do that since 1619, if not sooner. If you want to go back to, you know, the Spanish Empire and in parts of North and South America. The others, quote unquote, those who are always, not always, who have in recent history been victims of racist systematic oppression, and systemic oppression, they certainly have to talk about race. It's a matter of survival for my black and brown brothers and sisters to talk about race. They've been talking about race amongst themselves. They've been shouting at white people about their experiences with racism, whether or not we've listened. That's, whew, that's a whole nother ball of, ball of yarn right there. But white people, one of the things that this system of white supremacy that's been created one of the privileges of being white is we don't even ever have to talk about race. We're like fish, fish in the lake, fish in the ocean. We are surrounded by white supremacy. We are surrounded by systems designed to uphold white supremacy. We're surrounded by social and cultural and economic and political systems that work to our advantage that are rarely, if ever, directly acknowledged. Although, shout out to summer of 2020. People are starting to acknowledge that shit. Part of the reason why this podcast is starting in the summer of 2020. Probably should have happened years ago, but this summer has kind of lit a spark under me as well. So that's the goal of this podcast, is to talk about that water that we all swim through. That affects everything we do on a daily basis. And just like the fish doesn't even necessarily realize that he or she is in water, many white people don't necessarily realize 
that they are surrounded by a system of, of white supremacy. And they don't realize how they contribute to upholding that system. And so that's kind of my goal is to help us all, help all of my white listeners by sharing my own stories, help them to start to to share their stories with themselves, with their friends, with their families. Because then once we get comfortable as white people talking about race and talking about privilege and talking about whiteness, then maybe we can really make some lasting changes in our hearts and in our minds. Then maybe we can be true allies of our black and brown brothers and sisters. But if we're not willing to address whiteness and be real about it, and this is going to be uncomfortable because I'm going to share some stuff that I'm not proud of, some prejudice and discrimination that, that I've acted on, that I've thought, but if we're not prepared to have those uncomfortable conversations, then we're not going to make the real progress that this country so dearly needs to make. So that's my intro. I will not bore you with that intro every episode. There will be a much, much shorter, a truncated version maybe of some of that each episode just to give some new listeners some background. But that's where we're at. The journeys we take are real simple. As I mentioned a few minutes back, they're going to be chronological. So I'm going to start with my earliest memories as a human being on this earth, my earliest racial memories, my earliest memories with whiteness, and work my way all the way up to 2020. So... Let's set it off with story number one. Eight-year-old Jimmy Lincoln is the subject of this story. I'm the protagonist. Although I guess almost all of these stories, I'm going to be the protagonist, but maybe not. Matter of fact, episode two, I kind of take a step back. So I spoke too soon. But this story, I'm certainly the protagonist. And this story, if it's not the first time I became aware of race and my whiteness and what my whiteness meant and what it meant that others weren't white. If it's not the first time, then it's one of the first times. And I became aware of my whiteness, as you will see in the story I'm about to tell, in a way that to this day, I'm still not even sure the exact language that was used to socialize and to teach me about my whiteness. It was that kind of subtle and nuanced that it's only in retrospect that I've been able to look back and, and tell myself, damn, you were you were being taught a, a social lesson right there in that moment. Eight-year-old me didn't know I was, but those are the best social lessons, right? When it's like advertising, it works best when you don't even realize it's advertising. So this story takes place Summertime, and if I'm eight, it must have been 1986. Man, I'm old. Not really, though. For my older listeners, if you happen to be older than me, you're sucking your teeth right now. I'm talking about, man, he's not old. My younger listeners, I'm old. 
So I guess it's all relative. Eight-year-old Jimmy Lincoln, summer of 1986. The setting of this story, the broader setting, and then I'll work my way down, kind of get more and more micro, is Harrisonburg, Virginia. Harrisonburg, Virginia. Some of my listeners might be from Harrisonburg. Some of my listeners might have traveled through Harrisonburg. Some of my listeners might have attended James Madison University, which is located in Harrisonburg, or Eastern Mennonite University, also located in Harrisonburg, both great institutions of higher learning. So I don't know what your connection to Harrisonburg is. And some of my listeners, and hopefully very many of them, because hopefully this is worldwide, hopefully very many, many of my listeners have no idea where Harrisonburg, Virginia is, what Harrisonburg, Virginia is about. So since it's going to be the setting of this story and many of my stories, because I was born and raised there, didn't spend any significant time outside of Harrisonburg until I went away to college. Harrisonburg's a town of today probably between 50 and 60,000 people. When I was growing up, it was maybe closer to 40. You can call it a small city, a very small city. You can call it a very large town, whatever you want to call it. Situated in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. Shenandoah Valley is right in between the Allegheny and Appalachian Mountain Ranges or Allegheny and Blue Ridge Mountain Ranges, which make up together the Appalachian Mountain Ranges. Shout out to my geography nerds who are going to correct me, but I think that's correct. And it's in the western part of the state. And at the time I was growing up, Harrisonburg, not very racially and ethnically diverse. I would say, just guesstimating here, but 1986, I would say Harrisonburg was 85% white folks, 10 to 12% black people, and then the other percentage just being a mixture of, you know, people of Asian descent, Latinx folks, and other races and ethnicities. So not a very diverse city, not a very diverse town. Growing up in the 1980s in this city, had a great childhood for the most part. The story in today's episode, I told you, takes place in the summer of 1986. And it takes place at a summer day camp hosted by the Harrisonburg Parks and Recreation Department. Now, I don't know if they still do these camps. I hope they do. I think they do, as far as I know. But they were awesome. What they were, were basically child care services provided at either very low cost or possibly no cost to families in Harrisonburg during the summer months when Children between the ages of 5 and 18 obviously weren't in school, but their parents, by and large, still had to go to work. And these camps were set up around the city. I don't know how many of them there were. I'm going to assume that there were at least three. One for each of the city elementary schools that was operational in the 1980s when I was growing up. And these camps would be located at a city park somewhere near the school population that it served. So just like the elementary schools were divided up geographically, which led to some, some segregation, we'll have to do a whole episode on 
residential segregation and school segregation at some point because it is disgusting to think. It is disheartening to think. It is incredible to think that many of America's school systems today in 2020 are as segregated as they were prior to the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision of 1954. Meaning in more than 50 years, we've made, at least in many school systems, in many school districts, zero progress towards integration of our schools. And the reason for that, most people know, is because we've made very little progress as a society towards integrating ourselves residentially. But we'll get to all that. That's later episodes. Some of that macro stuff. I don't want to get lost in the trees. Back to Harrisonburg. Back to my summer camp. I'm eight. Really, who knows? I could have been nine or ten. I'm going to say eight because it sounds good. Eight years old. 1986. Harrisonburg, Virginia. And I'm attending one of these day camps held at a Harrisonburg City Park. And because the day camps were divided geographically identically to how the schools were divided geographically, the kids at your day camp were the same kids who theoretically would be at your school. Now, a lot of my friends from school didn't attend these day camps because a lot of my elementary school friends were middle upper class kids whose parents either had the type of job that had flexible hours or had the type of job where they could afford more expensive childcare or their parents, their mother typically was for lack of a better word, although this word is such a fraught with so much meaning, lack of a better word, their, their mother was a housewife. Now, ironically, my mother was a kindergarten teacher, meaning my family had for all intents and purposes, no need for childcare during the summertime. My mother was a kindergarten teacher in the same school system that me and my two younger brothers attended, so we had identical schedules in terms of when we were off and all that. And yet, my mother sent me to these municipal day camps multiple summers. Now, I'm not really complaining because they were fun. But I'm also like, damn, mom, because I don't think she sent my two younger brothers. But then another part of me, another part of me is like, damn, mom, I don't blame you because I know what kind of a hot mess of a, a young person I was. I was impulsive and mischievous and always clowning and always doing something I wasn't supposed to. Wasn't a bad kid by any means but didn't always make them the wisest choices. And in fact, my impulsivity and my sensitivity and my big mouth and my mischievousness play a role in this story today. So because these summer camps mirrored the city school system in terms of the demographics of who attended them, the summer, cramp, the summer camps in Harrisonburg, Virginia were quite segregated. My elementary school was probably the whitest of the three elementary schools in Harrisonburg. And mind you, it, you know, at this time, I don't necessarily understand that or recognize that, but it is certainly true. My neighborhood that I, my family had just moved into this neighborhood, matter of fact, was very white. 
Meaning all the kids at my summer day camp were very white. Not very white as in like (laughs) they were real fair skinned, but meaning all the kids there were white. And I attended summer day camp at Purcell Park, which was about a block away from, from where my parents owned a house. And white privilege and the wealth gap between white and black families plays a big role into the fact that my parents were not only able to buy a house, but buy a house that was in the neighborhood right next to a giant municipal park. We'll get into that in later episodes too, but there are layers to this. Purcell Park, great park, had baseball fields, had a lot of green space, has playground areas, multiple playground areas, picnic shelters, really cool park, at least for a small town or a small city like Harrisonburg. Not a bad park. In fact, one of the coolest parts about this park in the 1980s, and this has nothing to do at least as far as I know, with whiteness, but this is still one of the coolest parts of this park ever and tells you how much different society is in 2020 than it it was in 1986. But there used to be a dead-ass actual airplane sitting in this park. In fact, I remember as a kid, even before I lived in the neighborhood adjacent to this park, it was referred to by me and, I guess, younger friends and cousins as the airplane park. Because it had a whole ass airplane, like a military airplane sitting in the park with ladders and stuff that kids can climb up in and onto and climb on the outside of the plane and on the inside of the plane. And I don't, it, you know, in my eight-year-old mind, this thing was huge. Looking back on it, it probably wasn't as big as I'm thinking. And I don't know if it was a naval plane, army plane. I don't know who used it. It was definitely military and it was silver. And I'm guessing from the forties or fifties, I don't, my aviation, (laughs) aviation history, historical knowledge is quite limited. So maybe if somebody really wants to know what this plane looks like, when you get my email address at the end of each episode, you can reach out to me. I'll see if I can find your picture, but sidebar, this plane had zero modification to make it in any way safer. Not only was the metal surface, the hottest surface on the face of this planet during the summer month, but it had wires, exposed wires jutting out everywhere. Metal, all kinds of jaggedy metal shapes poking in and out everywhere. And as a kid, you thought it was awesome. But looking back on it now, the fact that this was the centerpiece This metallic, I mean, I think the glass was still in the front windshield of the plane, which would never be the case today. This metallic lawsuit waiting to happen was the centerpiece of a a child's park. It's kind of awesome to think about. I don't remember anyone ever getting, like, really badly hurt, but we would always get, like, cut and scraped up from the inside of climbing around and through this plane. Alas, the plane has been removed for anyone who wants to go back and follow in the actual footsteps of my journey into whiteness. You will not see an airplane in Purcell Park. I hate, hate to break it to you. All right. Back to my story. Story takes place 
probably a June or July day. And these summer camps were pretty simple. They had their recipe down cold. We played a lot of kickball. We played a lot of Foursquare. Oh, Foursquare used to be my jam. I feel like anyone my age, especially if you were a boy and you were socialized to think that, you know, sports and games were all that matter. But anyone my age, anyone in their late 30s, 40s, mid 40s, I feel like that was the heyday of Foursquare in the 80s. Could be wrong. Maybe it was just in Harrisonburg. But I love me some Foursquare. <coughs> Excuse me. In fact, I thought I was going to go to the Olympics playing Foursquare. No one had bothered to tell my eight-year-old ass that they don't play Foursquare in the Olympics. I was convinced I was going to go. This story doesn't involve Foursquare. It involved another game, however, that we used to play at summer camp, but I've never seen it anywhere else. Never heard of it anywhere else. So I really hope that it's like a Harrisonburg-only game that some low-level employee in the Harrisonburg, Virginia Municipal Parks and Recreation Department invented this game and then somehow invented the the materials to play this game. I doubt that's true. I guess this game is played in many different small cities and towns and maybe large cities all over the country, but I have yet to see it since. And I don't even remember the name of this game. I'm going to call it Knockball. That sounds about right what we called it, and I really only played it during these summer day camps. And the game was quite simple. There was a table, maybe eight feet long, and it was set on an incline so that the the end of the table furthest away from where you were standing was higher up than the end of the table where you were standing. And the table had a wooden wall all around the perimeter of three sides. The wall was maybe six inches tall, probably not even. But that wall goes around three sides of the table. The only side that the wall doesn't go around, the only part of the perimeter of the table not covered by a wall, is the section where you and your opponent were standing. <coughs> Excuse me. There, the only other way, I guess, feature of this table that, that's important is besides having this small wooden wall around the perimeter of the table, you have the uh, a wooden wall the same height vertically dividing the table in half. But that wall doesn't go across the entire diameter of the table or the entire length of the table. I don't know about much about geometry either, so someone feel free to email me and correct me. That wall goes maybe three quarters of the way toward the top of the table, leaving space between the end of the table, where it's inclined, and where the wall itself ends. So if you're looking at this table, and you're looking at just where the wood is around the perimeter, and then the small wooden wall vertically bisecting the table, or at least vertically bisecting three-quarters of the table, it looks like an upside-down U or maybe an N. And you played you and your opponent standing on either side of this central wall that was bisecting the table, you held with what, in my mind, was a bowling pin, but like a duck pin, and you held it upside down, so from the neck of this bowling pin. And that was your knocker, 
and you knocked a basically thick foam baseball, like a baseball that maybe your team might have used if it was raining and you guys had to practice in the gym. That was the ball you knocked. And the goal was simple. You tried to knock the ball from your side of the table up the incline and then have the ball roll down on your opponent's side and you tried to hit it hard enough with enough English using the proper geometry so that for whatever reason, because they missed it or it was spinning or it was bouncing too crazily, for whatever reason, your opponent wouldn't be able to return the ball to your side and then they would lose either a point or the game. I don't remember the scoring system. I don't remember if we played with one or two balls. I think depending on your skill level, maybe you added a couple balls. But I remember this game was fun as shit. I do tell, I do remember that. And like most playground games, I think the key was it was easy enough that you could pick it up in one or two tries, but you could develop your skills to the point where you could become really good at this game. So whether you were an expert or an amateur, or an expert or a beginner, we're all amateurs, nobody was getting paid. Whether you're an expert or a beginner, you could have fun playing, especially if your opponent was similar skill level as you. So I guess, you know, like Foursquare or Ping Pong or Tetherball. Tetherball was the shit, too. Simple to play, fun to play. And because I was super competitive, super sensitive, and super big mouth, I often got into disputes and arguments as I played this game. And today's episode, the climax of it, hinges on <coughs> the consequences of one of these disputes and arguments that I got into. Long story short, a young man who I don't remember his name, I certainly couldn't couldn't pick him out of a lineup. I don't remember any facial features. I sort of vaguely remember a ponytail, but I also wonder if that's my memory, like creating a character, because I don't know how accurate that is. But this young boy and me were playing knockball, and we got into some kind of argument. My guess is somebody accused the other one of cheating, because when you're eight, nine, ten, whatever, it's a pretty common refrain, especially if the somebody doing the accusing happens to be losing, then it's pretty convenient to levy that charge at your opponent. I don't know why we started arguing. I guarantee it had something to do with cheating or scorekeeping or something, something where one of us felt like an injustice had occurred. That argument led to a fist fight. For me, that was not surprising. I'm not a tough dude. I'm not a thug. I've probably lost more fights than I've won. But for most of my childhood, and into my adolescent years, I found myself getting into a lot of fights. And I kind of just gave you the recipe for why. I'm, I was impulsive, was, slash is. I am extremely sensitive, always in my feelings. And I have a big mouth. And I often, I'm a verbal kind of thinker and learner. So I'm often saying things before I'm really realizing what I'm saying. So you combine those three characteristics 
you're going to fight a lot, whether you want to or not. And that's kind of what happened to me a lot in elementary and middle school. This was one of those fights. I don't remember who won or lost. And I would tell you all if I lost. We'll probably hear about some of my L's coming up later. In, in, in later episodes. As a matter of fact, I know you will. But this fight, I don't think, and partially because we were eight or nine, I don't think there was much of a winner or a loser. I do know no one was significantly hurt. I'm pretty sure there was no blood. So a typical run-of-the-mill elementary school age fist fight. And today's episode hinges not on the fight, but on how I was disciplined after the fight. And it was simple. And it didn't. It was one of those things I don't think I thought about for years afterward. But only kind of came back to me. As I got older. And began to try to start to unpack. What it means to be white in America. But the fight's over. Me and the young boy who may or may not have had a ponytail. No real judgment either, because there was a point in time where growing up in Virginia in the 80s, (coughs) excuse me, I certainly wanted a ponytail. Me and the boy who may or may not have had a ponytail had been separated. I'm assuming he's either off sitting at a picnic table by himself, kind of in timeout, or perhaps getting a talking to from other camp counselors like I was. I don't remember where he was. But I was definitely getting a talking to, and I was definitely by more than one counselor. I know that. And I even vaguely remember one of them maybe doing that adult. It's sort of creepy, in my opinion, kind of inappropriate. Not in like a sexual way, but just inappropriate in, in, in kind of respecting space. That sort of creepy thing where adult males will kind of grab the, the shoulder of a young male as they're disciplining them, kind of letting them know this is serious. And it wasn't painful or anything, but like, I feel like that was in part of this conversation. I can't guarantee it. And that's not the main part, but they're, they're kind of giving me the business. I got in, I got in trouble a lot at this summer camp, mostly mischievous stuff, back talking, not following directions, running off occasional fights. But I can imagine I was a headache to these counselors. I have no doubts that I was a headache to these counselors. And they're pretty pissed off that I'd gotten in in this fist fight. And they're telling me how angry and frustrated they are. And in the course of them telling me how angry and frustrated they are, and I don't know if they plan this or not, but they come upon what they think is going to be an appropriate punishment. Now, they never carried this punishment out. I don't even think technically they would have been able to. But the punishment they threatened me with was very specific and very much related to whiteness and white supremacy and racism and stereotypes of people who aren't like you. Their punishment, and they told me this very clearly, they told me, and mind you, I'm eight, that if I kept acting up, specifically if I kept getting in fights, they were going to send me to the summer camp program at another park in Harrisonburg. 
Now, at first glance, my listeners might be like, well, that's kind of a reasonable punishment. And in some ways it is. Harrisonburg's not that big. It would have meant an extra 15 minutes for my mother or father in the morning to drop me off and an extra 15 minutes in the afternoon to pick me up. But otherwise, on its surface, threatening to send me to another camp, especially if I've been consistently getting in trouble at the one I'm currently attending, maybe isn't that big of a deal. But it wasn't that. That's not how the threat went. It wasn't a generic, hey, you're going to go to another camp. And honestly, I didn't have a lot of friends at the camp I was attending. I had fun there, but I don't think I would have had any trouble making friends at a new camp. They specifically threatened to send me to the summer day camp program at Ralph Sampson Park in Harrisonburg. Now, all of my, well, not all, but I'm guessing the majority of my listeners know that Ralph Sampson is an incredibly accomplished, incredibly famous basketball player. One of the best college basketball players of all time. A star in the 80s until injuries really robbed him of his prime. But Ralph Sampson is easily... Oh, and I should point out, because that's going to be part of the story, Ralph Sampson was a black man, if you didn't already know that. Ralph Sampson's easily the most famous human being to be born and raised in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And in fact, Ralph is going to come up in our next episode, too, because he has a connection that he probably isn't even aware of to my family, and that connection is kind of interesting in how it plays out. But that'll be a future episode. Harrisonburg had decided at some point, probably in the late 80s, early 90s, to rename an already existent city park after Ralph Sampson. And this city park was located in a section of Harrisonburg that was predominantly made up of black residents. Which in some ways makes sense because it was the area where Ralph himself grew up. But in other ways, if you think back on it too, it's, it seems like even when a, even when American society does decide to recognize the achievements, the historic achievements of black people, we often want to do do so in a way that kind of segregates them to the black part of town or the black neighborhood in town. But Ralph Sampson was definitely in the black section of Harrisonburg, Ralph Sampson Park. And these camp counselors made it clear that that's where they wanted to send me. They wanted to take me from what was ostensibly the whitest day camp in Harrisonburg, and send me to the blackest. And they made sure that my little eight-year-old bud understood why they wanted to send me there and what it would be like when they sent me there. So they didn't just tell me they're going to send me to Ralph Sampson Park and that would suck. They then went on to describe for me what it would be like for me to attend camp at Ralph Sampson Park. And they talked about, and I remember them talking about, and I don't remember the language they used. I'm pretty sure they didn't use the N-word. 
pretty sure it was more dog whistly and coded than that. And they talk about, though, the young men at this park, the boys at this park, and what they were going to do to me physically. Basically saying that these black kids are going to beat my white ass. In fact, that phrase might have even been used. They probably wouldn't have said ass. But I have a distinct impression of being threatened with violence from black kids my age who I didn't know. Many of them I would grow to grow to be friends, friends with later in life. But at the time, I didn't know them because they didn't go to my elementary school. And my world as an eight-year-old was quite small. But that was their threat. Two white men running this day camp were teaching me all about blackness and whiteness and race. Teaching old eight-year-old me and not even knowing they were teaching me and I didn't certainly know they were teaching me. So as we wrap up today's episode, I want to kind of unpack this threat. So for a moment, we'll even ignore the fact that the punishment for me fighting was basically sending me to a place where I would be fighting more. At least that's how it was described. So the irony in that is is palpable and in some ways humorous. Hey, hey, man, we don't like all the fighting you do. You're doing. So our punishment for that is going to be to send you to a place where you're going to get beat up. It's like the death penalty. But I digress. What these camp counselors were doing was basically teaching me to fear black men or to fear black boys that would grow into black men because they made it very clear that I was going to get beat up in large part simply because I was white, simply because I was in a park where I didn't belong in a neighborhood in a part of town where I didn't belong. And the reason I knew I didn't belong was because I was white. All that was made clear to me. And I don't think these two camp counselors were history majors or even history aficionados. So I don't know if they knew that their two-minute conversation in 1986 in Harrisonburg, Virginia was building on centuries of stereotypes of black male violence. But it doesn't matter if they knew because that's exactly what it was. Because you can go back to the slave revolts in New York City in the early 1700s or the Haitian Revolution in the late 1790s, early 1800s in Haiti or Nat Turner's Rebellion and the the insane bloodletting that white citizens of Central Virginia did afterwards or to the myths and lies created by by Southerners during the era of Reconstruction or toward, or to the myths and lies perpetuated by Southerners after Reconstruction as part of this lost cause myth about how the Civil War had been a noble undertaking and how Reconstruction had unleashed violent blacks on an unsuspecting white population or to the way that Malcolm and the Black Panthers are still taught and still perceived today by many white folks or how Ronald Reagan talked about super predators in our city streets or how the exonerated five 
you might know them better by the Central Park Five, where the epitome of black males being punished simply for being black males and, be, and the association that so many white people have with black males and violence. Or to how George Bush, not W, but H.W., and his infamous Willie Horton ad in 1988 used the fear of black violence to win a presidential election. Those are just some of the examples of the stereotype of black male violence, black male animalistic violence that was so frightening and dangerous that it was used as a reason to justify not ending slavery. It was used as a reason to justify harsh treatment of slaves and other non-slave African-Americans. It's used as an excuse for the death penalty. It's used as a reason for mandatory minimum sentences or a reason to vote law and order candidates. The list goes on and on. But on that hot day in the summer of 1986, when eight-year-old Jimmy Lincoln was being threatened by two grown white men, and the threat was, we're going to send you to a park where these black animals are going to rip you to shreds. That was one of my earliest experiences with whiteness. And with racism. And I don't know if those counselors ever used the word black. And I'm certain they didn't use anything worse. But somehow it was communicated very clear to me that I, as a human being, was different from the kids at that camp. That I was a kid who got into trouble and made mistakes, but was deep down a good kid. That was conveyed to me. And it was also conveyed to me that those kids at that camp were not even human in the way I was. That they were dangerous. Now, mind you, they were talking about eight and nine-year-olds. And mind you, it's Harrisonburg, Virginia. And mind you, if I had gone to this park and gotten in fights, I'm sure it would have been my mouth and not my race who got, that got me into fights. But none of that mattered that day. I was very clearly being taught a racialized lesson as an eight-year-old. And it worked. I'm not going to lie. I can remember that how I felt after that speech. I was scared. I wasn't savvy enough to recognize that they were full of shit in terms of how violent these black young boys were. I wasn't strong enough to point out the irony of threatening an eight-year-old with violence for committing violence. I wasn't sophisticated enough mentally to call them on all their bullshit. I was afraid. I was afraid they were going to carry out their threat and send me to this park and send me to this day camp where I was going to get beat up just because I was white. That's how white supremacy is perpetuated. Stories like this, little incidences like that. Where you tell a eight-year-old boy, an eight-year-old white boy, 
that there are whole sections of his city teeming with with black children who look and act like him in every way except skin color. And you tell that white boy that those black children aren't really children. That they're savages waiting to rip him limb from limb. That's one way, one tiny, tiny, teeny way that systemic racism perpetuates itself. And all of this was done implicitly. So I hope y'all enjoyed this first episode. I hope that story was riveting enough, funny enough, poignant enough, whatever whatever adjective you're looking for enough. Next episode, I'm going to continue on my journey into this land of whiteness. You can reach me at any time with anything, questions, comments, concerns. Just keep it respectful. My email is jameslincoln313 at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I might even share your thoughts on air because I really do envision this being, being an ongoing conversation. And I hope that as the listeners grow and grow and grow, as more and more ears hear me out here, that they'll start sharing more of their stories they can, and we can really have a gigantic conversation about whiteness. Peace and love. Please check on future episodes because I'm going to be dropping them as quickly as I can make them. Y'all be safe. I'm out.